This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome to the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, including the ones that just don't go away. And uh, that is what we're going to talk about today. One of those ones that simply does not go away. Although I wonder if that's by design. Or is design too strong a word to use there? We've made a series of decisions that have led us to the point where it won't go away. And we wow. refuse to undo them. I like that. Is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Is it design, Scott, or, or is it, I don't know, is there a better word? Can design come about as the result of relatively haphazard, seemingly common sense accumulation. And then we look back at the cumulative effect of those seemingly common sense decisions and we see that there's been a trajectory. No, that wouldn't be designed, but I don't think that's what's happened. No, in this I case. think you're probably right. Although, to, because it, yeah. there's policy that underpins it. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Should we just say up front what we're talking about? Um, before you do, I should say that this is our only pre-election show that we're doing. Although for some of our listeners, in fact, for perhaps many of our listeners, they won't be hearing it until after the election. So we're recording this on... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So we're recording it on Wednesday. The first time it's going to go out is on Thursday. Uh, the time that most people listen to it on the radio will be Sunday, after which the Australian federal election 2022 will have already happened. And you'll know if this or another policy will, in fact, be enacted. So with that little caveat in mind, well, they go for it. We're talking about housing policy, mm. which I don't think we anticipated doing as a pre-election show. In fact, I know we d didn't anticipate that because we had a whole different show that was sort of much grander in its themes. But the reason I suppose we're doing that is that uh, it's become a major, perhaps the major mm. theme of the last week of the election campaign because of Scott Morrison's quite uh, attention-grabbing announcement of, an, I was going to say a new coalition policy. I suppose it is, uh, although a version of it was rolled out at the worst stages of the pandemic, wasn't it? The, the main idea being that you are allowed, uh, as a first-home buyer, to access your superannuation fund. Perhaps the most neutral way to say it would be to draw on your superannuation. A less neutral way would, would be to say to raid your superannuation, which is how some of the reporting has done, has said it. But um, you can go to your superannuation fund and you can use money there uh, up to a certain limit and within certain limits. Yes. You, it's up to 40% of your superannuation fund or 50000 whichever. Up to a maximum of 50000 yeah, yes. Right. To then put towards a deposit for your first home. Mm. And this has lots of people up in arms because that's not what superannuation is. It's purely a retirement fund. The whole point of it is you can't access it until you retire. Uh, this is a very good idea based on the very sound premise that human beings are terrible at delayed gratification and will spend money that they have access to when they have access to it rather than put it away for retirement. This in turn is important because um, if we can do this successfully, you take a lot of pressure off the aged pension and you provide for people a, a quality of life in retirement that the pension simply couldn't provide anyway. So anyway, I don't need to go through all the professed benefits of superannuation. Simply to say that this does seem to a lot of people the opposite of what superannuation is for. I will just add one little quirk 
or I will identify one little quirk in this policy that I think does make it actually more interesting than mm-hmm. it immediately sounds. And that is that in the circumstance where you take your superannuation and you buy a first home and then you sell that first home, mm, that's right. you have to return what you took out of the superannuation mm. plus the relevant proportion of any capital gain you got from selling it. So what that means is that you, your super ends up having put back into it what you took out, but also the investment yield of what you took out to the extent that investment yield is in the, the form of your first home. Mm. So that's interesting, actually, and it's, it raises some interesting things to think about if we're making this an economics discussion or something like that, which I don't think we really are. Um, Although feel free to, Scott. Mm -hmm. Um, I will just note while we're here, Labor also announced a policy. It did. Which uh, was a form of equity or shared equity in the home between you and the government. So it's a fairly small number of people and it's limited to certain values of housing that are fairly low. But the idea is that the government would buy... Like they, they would buy the house with you. Mm, 40%. And then over time you would pay out there, which, by the way, I, I, you might be familiar with this or not. I'm I was, I, I, was betting, I was betting, I know exactly what you're going to say, that this, no, is actually, this is actually a relatively well-established principle within Islamic finance. Yeah, this is exactly yep. how the most sort of classical form of Islamic finance works, mm. where it's not debt-based because interest, or at the very least usury, but really interest is forbidden. Yes. So what you do is it's equity-based. Mm. And the way it would work is, say you're the bank, you loan me the money, we actually buy the property together, I then pay you rent for living in the property, mm. and over time the rent that I pay, which you know part of that rent would by rights be owed to me as a part owner, but I pay it all to you, and that over time buys out your share. Mm. Um, and the idea is this is a fairer way of doing it because the risk is shared. That's right. If, if property prices plummeted tomorrow you're not in a situation where the bank says, well, sorry, this is what we lent you. We bear no risk. You owe us this. Mm. It's a situation where, well, there, there's a co-investment going in. So anyway, and I'll just say, Walid, over the last 2,000 years, the extent to which uh, various forms of quote-unquote Christian civilization have accommodated themselves to what was long regarded as the social sin or the social vice of usury is one of the many ways in which the Christian tradition, I think, has betrayed its own better instincts. Um, it's one of those, it, it, and I mean, one of the things that I also found so interesting uh, after 2008 and the global financial crisis is the number of people who were then going back to some of the earliest critiques of usury, yeah. the extent to which it's corrosive to the social fabric, and advocating, quite frankly, either very, very ancient or overtly Islamic forms of mutual risk bearing. I, it, it's so it interesting, really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we, you know, if we could do a show on Islamic finance one day, because <laughs> I'd it, love it. it's actually fascinating, yeah. not just in its original forms, but in the way it mm. tries to find a way of expressing itself in an environment that's dominated by its very opposite, namely interest-based and debt-based financing. Yeah. I've got a friend who did a PhD in it, and whenever I talk to him, it's just endlessly fascinating. And it's one of the most creative legal fields because you've got these people sitting, imagine, you know, like, high-end bankers sitting in rooms with Islamic sheikhs um, <laughs> trying to cobble together, would this kind of financial instrument 
Would that be permissible? Does that sufficiently avoid oh, the sort of... It. It's really fairly fascinating. Yeah, I love it. Maybe it just appeals to me because the legal metaphysics of it, I think, mm. is fascinating. So maybe not a mindful show. I've just talked myself out of that idea oh, as we've gone through it. Anyway, um, but that, so Labor's idea is a kind of equity-based financing. And what both of these policies seem to have in common is they're not really designed to drive house prices down mm. because that's the one thing that our politics can't countenance. Yeah, Labor's policy, however, doesn't do quite as much, I think. We can talk about this later, but Labor's policy doesn't do quite as much to run the risk of driving house prices up. Yes, but the reason for that is that it's so limited. Yes, that's right. That's right. So the way in which it avoids... Well, it's not just targeted. It's that it helps few people. Yes. Like, it doesn't actually solve the problem because the problem is bigger Mm. than the program can accommodate. Mm. It's this catch-22, right? If you design a program that will help the people that are relevant here, you end up not helping them because you inflate the market. And so, which is really what happens in the coalition's plan. And so what happens is the, the price of houses that are in that band for first home buyers, that just goes up by pretty much whatever you've given them extra. Mm. <laughs> so they just end up with less super or less whatever or bigger debt. But, yeah, um, yeah. Or, or there's a more subtle dynamic here, which is that mm. by granting people access to superannuation, to a certain amount of their superannuation, it increases, however marginally, and I think there's some debate about that. We may want to talk about it later. But it increases, however marginally, the number of people who then would be able to get into the housing market, who would stand to purchase their first home, without accordingly increasing the supply. In other words, there'd still be the same number of houses up for sale. There'd be more people vying to purchase those houses. And so it may or may not be that whatever amount people are able to take out of super, that's how much houses go up. It's simply going to be increased demand, same levels or flatlined supply, um, which then has the natural effect of, of increasing one another's competition uh, for yep. the limited supply. Hmm. Yeah, so that becomes inflationary. Yeah. And even if you don't have increased demand, it's inflationary anyway because you have the same demand but with more money. Mm. So I, I hear the, the government arguing that it's not inflationary, but I cannot for yeah, the life of me get my head around why that's the case. And I can't find many economists who, who think that either. Mm. But anyway, what I think is interesting about this, for us, I mean, this is a minefield, right? Yep. So we've got to make this grandly philosophical one way or another. And I think the way to do that is for us to think about what is the meaning attached to, what is our very concept of property and of home ownership here? Like what is at the heart of the proposals conceptually? And here I think we run into some quite profound realisations about what we've done to the idea of housing, mm. what it's for, why, and the manner in which we should provide it. And related to that is how we've worked ourselves into this position where the only politically possible and socially acceptable version of a housing policy is one that continues to drive prices up. Yeah. So we can, we, whatever we want to do to try to increase uh, accessibility to the market for those who aren't yet in it, it has to be while house prices keep going up or at the very least don't go down. Mm. And that's philosophically very interesting. Yes, I know you're very big on this, so I'll let you set the table here, but I look forward to eating with you. Oh, Pauline, glorious. Look, you're right, this is philosophically rich. It's philosophically rich, though, precisely because of a number of economic forces that are behind it. 
So I think the, one of the presumptions that's at play here, and, and I do want to go back into a little bit deeper history in a moment, but one of the, the economic developments that's at play is the seismic shift that took place at the end of the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s, which saw an international, globally coordinated increase in the possibility of home, of home ownership and in the uh, increase of value of homes themselves, which meant that finance became available to more people. And, I mean, we know some of the consequences of that because of what happened in 2008 and the collapse of the mortgage market. But home finance became more available to more people under more lucrative and lax conditions, uh, especially in the United States, though not only in the United States. And what that meant is that people were purchasing houses and the rate of the increase of those houses. And I remember this happening really vividly in 2002, 2003, 2004. Uh, some very dear friends of ours were, let me just put it this way. They were Johnny-come-lately real estate agents in a notoriously deregulated industry in which people who had no experience in real estate could essentially do a certificate for and license themselves as real estate agents and make unbelievable amounts of money simply by flipping houses. In other words, people were buying houses, putting them straight back on the market and receiving quite a healthy profit simply by that immediate. I mean, that's how quickly house prices were going up. So there was that period of time where more people were able to get into the housing market because of fortuitous or propitious financing conditions. House prices were going up so quickly that suddenly this became an unbelievably lucrative and seemingly reliable way of creating a little nest egg. In other words, what's your money doing in the bank? Why simply stand by and let it accumulate by means of relatively modest forms of compound interest? Why not invest in the housing market and then watch your available capitalization uh, turn over at an astonishing rate? That then leads to the possibility of more investment properties and, and, and so on. And so what we've had over the last two decades has been the coming together of two great innovations, I think, particularly in Australia. One is compulsory superannuation, and the other is the rapidly increasing rate of house value. And you put those two things together, and it means that a great deal of pressure is taken out of the pension system for uh, many, many Australians. And it means the possibilities of very comfortable retirement are more easily afforded. And can I say, what you've just described provides the most powerful, although I still think flawed, argument for the coalition's plan. Yes, that's what the plan is, is based on. The, why let your money languish in super, which is itself a ludicrous idea, why not invest Sorry, it? you're saying the, languish, the idea that it's languishing is ludicrous? Yes. The idea of super yeah. is ludicrous? Well, well no, no, the, the idea of the languishing is ludicrous and the idea yeah. that, you know, remember the old sort of phrase, safe as houses. If you really want yes. your money to do work, you put it into housing. Yeah. Whereas actually I was shocked to discover a near consensus that shares outperform. Yes, that's right. Uh, the property market, which, that's is, right. which is interesting because it's not the way, that's not the impression you get from the headlines. Did, did you also but, notice, in the, incidentally, Willie, and I, I don't mean to cut across you, but did you notice that the Prime Minister's justifying rhetoric surrounding this policy is of a piece with the language that he's been using since the moment that the pandemic began to recede, which is government has been front and center in people's lives. 
It's time, and you remember he said this, what was it, in February? It's time for government to step back yep. and give people their lives back. The same justification was used. This is your money, and what this policy mm -hmm. is meant to do is to get the government out of your business and to increase the choices that you're able to make with the money that you have. Yeah, although, do you know what? I think it only goes so far... Because if he genuinely was running that argument, there wouldn't be the requirement that you have to pay back the super. Mm, that's right. Right? Yep. So, which, by the way, is the bit of the policy that makes me think it almost works, at least theoretically. Because what it's doing then, the, the argument effectively becomes this. Well, super is really just your money being set aside for an investment and invested while you wait for it to mature and you access it later. Mm. If you take that out of your superannuation and put it into buying a house, well, that's the same thing. It's just a different investment. It's not you going and taking it and buying a car or a, a plasma TV or something. It's you just investing it in property rather than the stock market, mm -hmm. which is a perfectly valid investment choice, and you should be able to make that choice, particularly in a circumstance where you want to enter the property market and you can't unless you access this super. And the fact that it is an investment is buttressed by the policy that says when you sell it, you have to pay the money and the accumulation and capital gains back into your superannuation. So really what you're doing is taking superannuation, investing it over here for a little while, mm -hmm. and then putting it back into your superannuation so it can continue. All the while it's been invested. Yep. Now, there are problems with that. Yes, there are. Um, that we could get into economically. Part of it is shares outperform property. Part of it is what do you do when you sell and then you want to buy your next house and you can't use the capital gain from that to buy the next house, or at least that's the way it seems under this policy. But let's leave those to one side for a moment because that's the economic chat. Mm. What's interesting for us is that justification, which is I think the best justification you could muster for this policy, that justification asks us to see housing as investment. Mm, that's right. As Not as housing. Housing as an instrument of financial accumulation. Housing yes. as capital, housing as commodity. So what happens there is you're saying, no, we're not saying you can take your super to spend it because spending on housing isn't spending at all. Mm. Spending on housing is actually saving. Mm. <laughs> Think of your mortgage as a bank account and every bit of money you put in there is actually you just saving it and in an illiquid form, but nonetheless saving it, right? And that, what's interesting to me, Scott, is that would have a really powerful intuitive appeal for lots and lots of people. And I think it has a really powerful intuitive appeal because we have slowly, over the time period you've discussed, transformed, even if not explicitly in our own minds, but implicitly, so implicitly, just by osmosis, we take this in now, we have transformed our understanding of housing to that. Mm. It's not even controversial to think of housing that way. But I would argue, or I would wonder at the very least, whether or not it's historically very weird, like very aberrant, very controversial to think of it in that way. And that the philosophical problem at the heart of this is that once you think of property in that way, you end up with a housing affordability crisis because everyone's too busy saving or investing in what should really be an essential good. Yeah. For people. Can I just pick up the story really, really quickly and make two other? I'm, I'm so eager for us to get to the guest, but I think there are two other little sort of planks of the story that are really, really important here. Yeah. One is, I mean, I, I think this, the severing of the one phenomenon, namely a house, 
into two different appearances. On the one hand, as a commodity, as something that accumulates value, something that is a form of capital, something that is a, is a commodity that increases in its worth over time. And the other is house essentially as home, as something that represents stability, security, one's place in the world, one's belonging in a community. And it's so interesting, Waleed, isn't it? Speaking to people who are trying to get into the housing market for the first time, when they look at a house, they don't see investment. They see a longing for stability, security, a place in the world, a place near schools for their children. A pl- you know, in, in other words, it's something that doesn't have a use value, but rather is something that was viewed as, that is regarded to be an essential good for human flourishing and well-being. Then on the other side, something becomes something, a possible commodity that is flippable. There's this wonderful book that I love by the cultural critic and uh, Shakespeare expert, uh, Marjorie Garber. It's called Sex and Real Estate. I, I, I love it, and I highly recommend it. Anybody, I mean, it's part of it is about the overtly sexual language we use to describe real estate. But she's got this beautiful little section about what goes on when people talk about doing or doing over a house uh, in order for it to be flipped. And, you know, it's kind of superficial, it's commodity based, it's, you know, doing the appearances so that it can then catch the eye of prospective buyers versus Mm. what happens when we take a house and we make it a home. It may well involve the same, quote-unquote, renovation, but it no longer has the same use value. It's not utilitarian in the same way. There's there's an ethical substructure to it. And for that reason, it probably doesn't actually involve the same renovation. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's something deep about those renovations. So I think that separation between home and real estate, that's a little bit older than we think. I mean, the first place I remember really seeing it vividly is in E.M. Forster's novel, Howard's End, where you've got this home in a rural area to the south, to the uh, northwest of London that is guarded over by this enormous witch elm that is pokey and claustrophobic and yet unspeakably welcoming and hospitable. It's a place where good things happen versus the sterile, dust-filled uh, real estate that's available to possible renters in London. And I think there's there's something about that that is at least a century old. The idea of home for some people being something that is that doesn't have profit value, but rather has a value that far transcends that. But I think the other thing that's been going on here, Waleed, and this is where I just don't think the prospect or the ideal of home ownership, I don't think it would have its same grip on us if this weren't other development didn't take place. Um, in the three decades following the Second World War, I mean, mo- most people know this, in the United States, in the UK, in Australia, other places, I'm just going to s- single out those three. There was a tremendous social housing building project that took place, partly out of the reconstruction in the post-war years, partly out of recognition, in many cases explicit recognition, that house or home, is an essential human good. And there wasn't really a stigma attached to uh, availing oneself of social housing. Instead, the security that social housing afforded you was in part the reward that you get for being a reliable, trustworthy tenant. Um, What took place from the mid-70s onwards, and you can see this very, very clearly Uh, At the same time as something else took place we've talked about previously, namely the moralization of poverty. The idea that poverty goes from 
not just misfortune that could overtake anybody, but a kind of moral defect, something that happens only to people who are the worst of the worst of the worst. Therefore, welfare becomes something that is stigmatized. At the same time that poverty becomes moralized in the sense of it, you know, naming someone as poor, a recipient of welfare becomes a kind of moral judgment. At the same time, partly because of the, the sale of public housing, the privatization of public housing, public housing or social housing undergoes a process of what's sometimes called residualization. In other words, a bare minimum of public or social or council housing is retained for those who are in extremis, for mm. people who are in uncommonly dire straits, so that the residual rump that aren't part of the social body uh, then get the benefit of that housing. But what then happens, of course, is that the overarching stigma that attaches to poverty also attaches to council housing. So that though these become places of lawlessness, yep. of dysfunction, and so on. And so that's the direct result, not just of the shrinking of the welfare system and the stigmatization of those who receive it, but also the shrinking of the stock of public housing. So that the benefit of security that used to be part and parcel of the provision of social housing and that therefore allayed the need for home ownership and the security that comes along with that, that is also taken away through the precariousness of council housing itself. And so I, I, I can't help but thinking, Willie, that this overarching process of the shrinking of public or social housing availability, the changing of housing into a commodity, something that must increase in value, that then goes hand in hand with the idea that the housing that increases in value, that value increases at the expense of other people. And here's where I think the mm -hmm. analogy with the stock market doesn't maintain. Stocks can rise, and a lot of people get the benefit of stocks or the value of a company rising. When the value of a home or a house rises, that is to the detriment of other people who are not able to afford this increasing rate of housing itself. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, but uh, you could tease out the argument more and go, well, when the stocks of one company goes up, that usually means its competitor has suffered and there are other people who... Um, have stocks and whatever, but I think it would be. But I would just say then that stocks don't have the argument. status of, of of a public good, something that have a use value. No, and, and the point is, you're not turning something essential into That's an investment right. that right. can potentially pull something essential out of the reach of people. You made me realise as you were speaking that I might have made a mistake before in saying that you know historically we wouldn't have seen housing this way. Maybe we would have under say a feudal system. Yeah. That's or something right. like that. And maybe that's, a, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, we're recreating a feudal system, but we're, we're embracing some of the logic. Yeah. Um, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can podcast, or sorry, listen to the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. For our guest for this week's show, we've really shot for the stars. Uh, Rachel Ong Viforge is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Professor of Economics in the Faculty of Business and Law at Curtin University. And I'll just say, Waleed, any list of people that we would want to talk to about this topic would have Rachel right at the top. And so, Rachel, it means a great deal that you've taken up our invitation. Thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Oh, Scott, thanks so much for that glowing introduction. I'm really pleased to be on the show to chat with you and Waleed. Uh, well, since you've said that, you've heard what we think. 
You've heard some of our concerns. You've heard a kind of potted history in some of the philosophical and moral concerns that we've raised. It just strikes me, though, that some of the philosophical and moral concerns that we've raised are really not separable from some of the economic concerns that are also attached to particularly the coalition's policy. I'm not going to guide you in a particular direction. Where, where do you want to take up this conversation? Well, Scott, how about if we start with, let, let's go back to, to the coalition's policy, because yes, the economics are very important in there. But I, I'd really like to, to, I think, highlight the perspective of um, inequality that I see as a problem that's attached to this policy. And sure, you know, like it is a scheme where they've basically said, if you need to dip into your super or, you know, as some people say, raid your super in order to purchase your first home, go for it. But the question then is, who are the people who are really being helped by this scheme? Because if you if you sort of think about it carefully, it, it doesn't actually help everybody. Because there is actually a 5% minimum deposit requirement that the first home buyer has to come up with. Okay, so what that means is by default, if, if you're an aspiring first home buyer, but you have not saved up for that 5%, um, then you actually don't qualify for the scheme. I know it's been pitched as, as something that, you know, that has no income cap, no property cap, but uh, there is a, a constraint there, which is the buyer has to put up a 5% deposit. Uh, and that's fair enough. Uh, they're expecting the buyer to put up a certain amount of deposit, and that's the same a percentage that's attached to the, the Liberal Party's other scheme, which is the Home Guarantee Scheme. But the statistics show, of course, that if you look at young renters who are yet to buy their first home, uh, the majority, and I would say we're looking at something like about 70% of them, have actually not managed to save enough to cover the 5% deposit on an average price house in their city or in their region. And that's really not surprising the way that house prices have outstripped incomes in recent years. So the question then for me, you know, becomes who exactly is this, is this scheme benefiting? Okay, because not all young people are poor and not all young people are on low incomes. And unfortunately, what this scheme seems to be doing is that it's actually opening access to superannuation for home purchase to people who are on relatively high incomes, people who have got a healthy superannuation saving, and people who could perhaps easily pay that 20% deposit on their first home without actually having to dip into their super. But now they can. And of course, as, as both of you have mentioned during your conversation, uh, that's inflationary. And, and for what? You know, I'm asking the question, we would probably have about one in 10 young renters who could who could actually meet that 20% deposit requirement without having to access their super. But now they can, and because they can, many probably will. And the problem as I see it is, is that it's actually pushing the prospects of home purchase further and further away from those on lower incomes, from that 70% who may increasingly then have to say, well, that great Australian dream is actually fading away and, you know, who are possibly looking at lifelong renting. Hmm. Mm. It, is, it is the case, is it not, that there has always been the possibility of, say, emergency access to superannuation. So in conditions of, say, hardship or duress, you can make application. Mm. Um, so there is, I guess, a degree of precedent for this. 
What, what? Well, except this isn't hardship. No, it's... So it, this is why I say the strongest argument for it is this is just redirecting investment. That's, that's right. And, and I guess this is what really... The thing that worries me most is that we know that many people over the course of the last two years faced with unemployment, uh, faced with mounting debt, have in fact had to draw upon their super in order to sort of meet living Mm. expenses. So there has always already been a certain depletion of superannuation. We also know that some people have done that to buy stuff they want. Yes, that's true. That means the dream, the ideal scenario of home ownership with an ever-increasing commodity coupled with a decent amount of superannuation leading one into a fairly well-padded retirement. That dream is already facing, I think, a certain degree of pressure on both sides. Uh, I mean, one is sort of lower rates, possibly, of superannuation. But Mm. Rachel, some of the research that you've undertaken that really, I guess, both impressed and worried me greatly is the percentage of Australians that are carrying mortgages into their retirement already. Mm. Yes, uh, that's right. So I think when you look at you look at housing, the housing asset, and then you look at the superannuation balance that, that someone has. And, and what this, the scheme is currently doing is it's saying, well, asset substitution can happen now. Uh, you don't have to wait until you pass your superannuation compulsory preservation age to be able to dip into your super. So young people can substitute one asset for another and sh- shift their funds around in the way that they see fit. But the problem there is that it's actually, it's, it's putting pressure, I think, um, on people in later stages of their life course, when you, if you just think a, a little bit longer term, we have people having to take up higher mortgage burdens than ever before in order to become homeowners. Okay, so if, if you sort of look back to say 30 years ago, and if you were in your, you know, if you were a 30 year old at that time, and you were a homeowner, then there's an 80% chance that you would have a mortgage debt against your home, even though you were only 30 years old. But these days, almost every young person who is a homeowner is carrying a mortgage debt burden. And we're also seeing mortgage burdens rising amongst those who are in the middle age groups and in the older age groups, amongst those in their 40s and 50s, for instance, um, the share of homeowners carrying a mortgage debt has actually doubled from about 35% to about 75% over the last 30 years. And even amongst those in your 50s and 60s, we're seeing mortgage debts increase. Hmm. So what we're seeing is, you know, yes, people are getting into home ownership, but they're having to take out large mortgages in order to secure that home ownership status. And many of them are actually unable to pay that debt off over their life course. And of course, there's there's also that incentive for them to dip into their superannuation once they you know pass the preservation age in order to pay down any mortgage debt that they're still carrying when they're in their late fifties and sixties. So you know we already know that there are people who are actually using super to pay down mortgage debt when when you know they're older, and now we're asking people to dip into their super to get into their first home earlier in the life course as well. So that's actually placing quite a a lot of pressure um, on people's superannuation savings. We're asking them to use it when they're approaching retirement. We're also asking them to use it to get onto the housing ladder when they're in their 20s and 30s. And there are, of course, bigger picture concerns there. One is, well, well, will we have enough superannuation? 
you know, will someone who's dipped into their superannuation when they're young and when they're older still have enough in retirement? And, and, and what's that going to do to the age pension system? Of course, that's a, another relevant question because yeah. you know, if someone's superannuation savings are low, then you know that, that places pressure on yeah, the pension well, system. One of the whole points of superannuation was to take pressure off the pension that's system. That's right. So, yeah. um, that's right. Superannuation is philosophically interesting, though. And can I just be clear at the outset? I'm not here in what I'm about to say, saying that superannuation is a bad idea or a bad policy or whatever. That's not where I'm going with this. What I'm just trying to say is the philosophical implications of it are fascinating and may well lay the groundwork for where we've ended up. Because one thing that superannuation does is it transforms every worker into an investor. So it creates a polity, or sorry, that's probably the wrong word. It creates an electorate that is almost entirely in the investor class. You could say that it does so to very differing degrees. So there are some people who have very little investment, some people have great investment, but just about the whole country has an interest in the stock market doing well, right? Because our retirement savings are going to, or or the quality of our life in in retirement is going to depend on that Mm. to some degree at the very least. Now, I wonder if that philosophical shift, which is not something we talk about a lot, and I suspect if you stop people on the street and said, Hey, do you, do you feel like an investor? They, they, they probably wouldn't, you know, are you part of the investor class? They probably wouldn't say yes, um, or at least a lot wouldn't. But I feel like it, it has seeped in, right? We sort of intuitively understand that. And once you make that shift, then it seems to me it's not far from that shift to making everything that can be investment, investment including housing. So we're, we're already philosophically or psychologically primed for that. And so we, we do it. Now, one of the things about transforming everyone to an investor class is that because people have very differing investment power because of the wealth they've accumulated and managed to invest in the form of superannuation, for example, or in property, you're going to, it seems to me, and here I rely on your economic expertise, Rachel, because this is just a guess from me, but you're going to exacerbate inequality. If that's true, then it doesn't surprise me that inequality begins to lose its political punch because to some extent we're all signed up to this. We're, we're all seeing um, a bit like what we see in the United States where people who are not wealthy aren't resentful of the billionaire because they see the possibility of themselves in the billionaire, even if that's a fantasy for them, that they see that, right? So there's far less resentment in that way than there has historically been in a place like Australia. I wonder if that's changing. Now we're actually beginning to develop a new political psychology of sufficient comfort with inequality that we leave ourselves with no option on housing policy that would make housing more affordable, that is drive prices down, because that just too fundamentally contradicts the investor psychology that we've, that we've now taken on fully. Is there something in what I've said there that, that I'm completely getting wrong that sort of undermines that sort of analysis, or, or is, there, is there a real change here that we're now living through? 
Yes, I, I can see where you're getting with uh, some of the points that you're making. So this idea that we're all kind of getting co-opted into becoming an investor class, I think is, is a relevant one. Look, if you look back at the superannuation system, after all, it was really the superannuation guarantee, which was compulsory, was was only really introduced on a widespread basis in the early 90s. So there's, there's a lot of people... Um, who are older, who don't actually have much super, but that's that's not the case for the younger generation. They have entered the workforce knowing that this superannuation system exists, and that that's uh, there's money that's going to be going into this nest egg that they have in the form of their superannuation through their entire working career. So, um, and that of course gets invested, and so we we all have a stake in in how the financial markets are performing, and I think that's obvious. And, and I think it does lead to a problem with enhanced, well, enhanced inequality or, you know, a more greater inequality across, I think, different groups in society. And, and we, we have, of course, got structural issues where people in certain occupations and less than others, for instance, those in the care occupation, aged care, for instance, disability care, they, they tend to, well, I think there's a lot of debate out there uh, or rather agreement, really, that, that there's undervaluation happening there. And, yeah, and largely that, feminised industries too. So you have the, the crisis that's of right. female superannuation. Yeah, That's right. And that's a structural issue because there's this, this idea, I think, that exists that if you're engaged in care work, then perhaps you don't really need to be paid that much for it because, after all, it's caring, which is absurd, of course. But, you know, it has contributed, I think, to... The undervaluation of certain occupations, many of these are overrepresented by women, and of course that in turn leads to lower superannuation savings than than other occupations, you know, which which are less feminized. And so we, we have this problem, therefore, that just using the idea of the, the gender wage gap, that in turn then leads to a gender superannuation gap. Let's put it that way. And so this this idea of of us becoming a more capitalized, more uh, population that's comfortable with the idea of investing, I think inevitably also um, leads to the idea, to the outcome that there would be growing inequality across different classes in society and in different groups in the population. So I think that that is an issue. And of course, I think that you alluded to the fact that, well, therefore, that then flows on to housing in the sense that, well, we all then start to make it easier for us then to see housing as a financial asset. I think that's that's true as well. And I think that the problem there, though, is that the home, you know, well, is it a house or a home? <laughs> you know, that, that's the problem. It's not actually just an investment asset, is it? It's a really complicated good and it's it's a consumption good, but it's also an investment good. It's it's shelter, but you could also make money out of it. And yet it's all just tied up, tied up in this this asset, this one single asset, and trying to unpack that and you know split the value of the house somehow into uh, its consumption value versus its investment value and in, perhaps versus its emotional mm, value as well. Yeah. It's it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. There's somewhere oblique I want to go with this, actually, in just a second. Uh, this is The Minefield. Walid Ali is my name. My co-host is Scott Stevens. The voice you just heard belongs to Rachel Ong Vforge, an ARC Future Fellow and Professor of Economics at Curtin University.
Scott, do I have your permission to go sideways? Yes, yeah, go on, and then I've got a question. Okay, so if we've established that inequality is inevitably a growing problem because of the sort of investment-based political psychology we now have, and that therefore attempts to solve housing affordability tend to make this worse because we can't countenance the idea of house prices falling. I just wonder if this shows up in all kinds of other areas. So, for example, I'm fascinated by Labor's collection of policies. We saw Labor come out last week, uh, was it a week before, whenever it was, strongly saying they would support a minimum wage increase in line with inflation, which is quite high at the moment, so 5.1%, the current figure. Um, and then when the coalition refused to match that, then started saying, well, look how clear the choice is. We want wages to go up. They don't. For the, right. the thing that's interesting about that to me is that's Labor coming out really strongly, symbolically on things like inequality, but actually by picking the one policy where they don't have any direct influence. Mm -hmm. They're really saying, we'll write a submission to the Fair Work Commission and say this is what we would like to see, and the Fair Work Commission may promptly ignore them, and there's every chance they mm. would. But when you look at an area to do with inequality where they could really just directly affect it, such as the job seeker rate, they will not increase it. Mm. One of the reasons, uh, or at least they won't say they will increase it, one of the reasons that they say they won't is that they have to be responsible with their spending. Okay, so if it's about making sure we only really spend the money we can afford, whatever that means in an era of $80 billion deficits, but you know we can only spend because we've got to be really, really targeted. I then look at the childcare policy and I say, well, their current policy, which they're taking to the election, is to provide subsidies for childcare all the way up to households that earn more than half a million a year. Now, I know it's a slightly different argument. There's productivity argument at the base of that. I actually think the productivity argument is nowhere near made out at that level of income. I don't see that the Productivity Commission has said that it's a really strong return on that investment at that level of income. There's all sorts of other things that might go into that paid parental leave, et cetera, that might boost productivity. But no one's really even stopped to question that. So you have this weird situation where Government money goes to households on half a million, but we cannot afford, we cannot go to, it would be irresponsible to go to an election giving an extra, I don't know, $60 a fortnight or a week or whatever to, to people on unemployment. And I wonder if that says something about the tolerance and acceptance of inequality, that actually the problem is, in, the political problem for people is not that inequality needs to be dealt with. The political problem is taking money away from anyone. So if you take money away from people at the bottom end, then you get in trouble. Because how could you do this to those people? But if you don't give them extra money and you do give money to people at the top end, that's absolutely fine. There's something in the political psychology there that seems to me all bound up intricately or inextricably with what we've been talking about in housing policy superannuation, the creation of investor class, all of that. There's a big psychological shift in there that I don't think we've noticed, but the consequences seem to me profound and, and dominoing. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is coming out through the, the coalition's super home buyer scheme as well, because in a sense, you know, with that 5% deposit requirement that they've set, um, the scheme is actually not, not available to lower income people, but yet those who are on really high incomes who 
who don't actually need that super, that additional super to buy their first home, they can actually access it and still have quite a lot left um, in their super sa savings for them to be able to use later on in life. So it is a really, really strange, you know, a really strange sort of, I suppose, policy position for either party to take. Another, I suppose, housing issue that I would bring in that kind of speaks to what you've just talked about, Waleed, is, is this this issue around Commonwealth rent assistance. Because you know, I don't know whether either of you have noticed this, but in announcing their housing packages in the lead up to the election, neither major party has really put anything forward that's going to assist private renters especially low-income private renters. So again, you know, like the job seeker issue, they don't seem, neither party, and even Labour in this case, uh, you know, you were talking about Labour um, not saying that they would increase the job seeker rate. Well, um, they also haven't said that they, you know, would increase the rent assistance rate for low-income private renters, and neither has, has the coalition government. And yet that's that's been something that's been a really, really pressing issue. I mean, the private rental sector is growing. It's growing partly because people are finding it difficult to access homeownership. And yet, mm. instead of looking at low-income private renters and, and the fact that there is policy consensus across Australia that the Commonwealth rent assistance has not actually kept up with rent increases, it's poorly targeted. We've got uh, lots of people getting Commonwealth rent assistance who don't actually need it. And the flip side is also the case. So there's lots of people who need more Commonwealth rent assistance and they don't get it. And, and yet it's like instead of trying to solve this affordability problem by addressing, by looking outside the homeownership sector, looking at people who might be on lower incomes and be needing that extra assistance, um, there just seems to be this well, you know, for lack of a better word, an obsession really of just trying to keep pushing people into home ownership at the expense of rising house prices. And and a lot mm. of these people who will benefit from the coalition super scheme are people on very high incomes. Uh, just as many uh, will benefit from Labour's childcare subsidy, who would be on very, very high incomes. Um, and part of the logic, I would say, of encouraging people more and more and more into home ownership quite apart from the psychological or emotional or personal benefit, is the more people you get, this is the assumption, the more people you get into home ownership, the less, the more strain is going to be taken off the pension later on because they've got this investment, this store of, of steadily accumulating capital at their disposal, which then alleviates... They don't need to pay rent. And yeah, yeah, which, which means that alleviates the, the risk of the threat of, of late-in-life poverty. I mean, that, that, that again just strikes me as curious on all sorts of fronts because, again, this is one of those uh, aspects of public life uh, where not everyone benefits. House prices going up, the value of a house increasing... Uh, making good on one's investment, that then comes to the detriment of others later on. I mean, something we haven't talked about, we may have to record a little extra after this, <laughs> um, is, is the provision of public or social housing. And again, it, it just strikes me that part of the psychological need bound up with housing is for stability 
and security. And in those crucial three decades following the Second World War, stability and security was in fact afforded by social or public housing um, as part of a compact with the state that if you're a reliable tenant, then this essentially is is yours for life. I'm, I'm wondering if I noticed that both Labour and the coalition are taking, uh, I wouldn't say ambitious, but notable public housing construction plans to the election. Now, we haven't talked about that. I think we should. But I do wonder if, if there is no appetite, if there is no prospect politically of doing anything at all that causes house prices to fall because of the way that we've encouraged people to date to get into home ownership because it's a reliable investment. If there's no appetite for decreasing house prices or at least you know, encouraging them to flatten out uh, is the only solution to this widening chasm, to this growing problem of inequality, the provision of, if you like, non-judgmental uh, non or demoralized uh, public or social housing that then affords that possibility of stability, of security of one's place in the world. Mm, hard for a government to legislate or have a policy for non-judgmentalism or something. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the tricky part of... Yes, but, but, but hang on. We, we can stop talking about the lifters and the leaners. We can stop talking about those who get in and have a go uh, versus those who are simply sponging off the system. Sure. I mean, that we can absolutely do. Sure, but I, I suspect you're thinking that does more work rather than is more reflective. No, that's true. Um, we are out of time, at least for the radio show. I've got a sneaky feeling Scott's going to make us stay back after class to talk about his social policy or social housing <laughs> idea. Uh, it is a really important one, actually, so he's right to do so. But, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. It's been so great to have your expertise today. Thank you. It's been enjoyable talking to you both. That's Rachel ong Forge, who's an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Professor of Economics in the Faculty of Business and Law at Curtin University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week on the radio. Scott. Uh, Rachel, just very, very quickly, we haven't said anything about public housing or even about sort of, say, mm. rent, rent controlled housing. Yeah. I do note that a lot of people who want to own their home, they don't simply do it because it's going to be an investment that's going to help them out later on in life or because they feel like they need to get their toe into the market. But there really is a longing for security, for stability, which it seems to me outstrips so many of the more, say, mercenary or utilitarian uh, demands to sort of, you know, to dip one's toe in the housing market. Um, I'll just give you the chance to say whatever you want to say uh, about, um, about public housing. Yeah, so both the major parties, of course, put forward policies to increase the stock of social housing. Uh, I think for, for Labour, it's about 30,000 dwellings in the first five years, and the Liberals are, you know, suggesting that they will be able to increase uh, social housing dwellings by 27,500. Um, um, they, they have also pledged a $10 billion uh, social housing investment fund. Um, yeah, so that's is, the Labour um, that's right. Housing Australia Future Fund. Is mm, that right? That's yeah, right, That's yes. the one you're talking about. Yep. Yes, that's right. So that's, that's the 30,000 dwellings that I was talking about. So the idea there, I think, is that um, there's $10 billion that's going to get invested and the returns are going to be used to build what they estimate to be 30,000 social dwelling. So we don't actually get to use the $10 billion towards the building of the dwellings. We get to use the returns of the fund. And that's why the, the, the 30,000 dwelling 
number it is actually seems quite small compared when you compare that to you know sort of a 10 billion dollar figure i suppose the point i would raise is that the public housing wait list nationally is 150,000 yeah. households 150,000 households waiting and so um look 30,000 you know 27 and a half thousand if it were the liberals both would help you know but it gets nowhere near the 150,000 that's been there and uh, that we haven't actually been able to reduce the public housing wait list at all um, over the last few years. So so that's that's quite a problem there. And I think, you know, one of the, I, I think that really, really the key benefit of social housing other than uh, rebated rents is the security that it provides. And and that's something that I think people need it, people desire it. It's And so there is quite a long wait list for social housing there. Building more social housing would therefore promote um, security, both from an emotional perspective, but also from an economic perspective as well, because there are studies out there that show that, um, you know, if you have secure housing, then you have that that per- so-called permanent place that from where you can look for jobs. Uh, children who have secure housing do much better in their studies and therefore have better life prospects when they grow up. So there certainly is a case for building more social housing. The policies that have been put forward for building social housing have, have not been as generous uh, from what I can see as, you know, say the, the Liberals super home buyer scheme, in a sense, you know, that sort of extends to, they're saying it's unlimited, really. Um, you know, anybody who's eligible can actually access it. But well, except I that's think, less generous in the sense that the government doesn't spend anything. Hmm. I mean, that's that's right. We we spend our own <laughs> we spend yeah. our own savings to get ourselves into super, and and then we bear the consequences of that later. I think that's yeah. what they're they're basically saying. Uh, but the the amount of expenditure on social housing is is I think restricted when I sort of compare it to the need that's out there. So there certainly is a case for building more social housing. There may also be a case, I think, for looking at how we can improve security in the private rental sector. Mm, interesting. Because if security is what we're looking for, whether it's through homeownership or social housing or private renting, if it's, if security is what we're looking for through housing, then um, there there is great scope for reform through regulatory changes in the private rental sector to, I think, perhaps um, limit the extent of Terminations that happen without grounds, um, because right now I think uh, it's quite easy for landlords to be able to terminate leases by just giving a certain period of notice to their tenants. There's, there's reforms that we can think about that can take place in the private rental sector. And it's just, it's just the one thing that, you know, that I think surprises me that neither party seems to want to take a good hard look at the private rental sector where we have now one quarter of our population residing in. Yeah, but I think that's because that would require a further seismic shift in political psychology. I mean, I've spent a lot of this show talking about political psychology. Mm. It would require a further shift, which is to say home ownership per se isn't important. What's important Mm -hmm. are the things that Mm -hmm. it gives you, that is the emotional good of security or the um, physical good of shelter. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so so really what we're not interested in now is whose name is on the title deed. What we're interested in is who gets to have the benefit of those rights or the, those experiences or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I don't quite know how you create that, yeah. so that political well, psychology, uh, yeah. except can, by can... waiting for house prices to get so out of reach that almost mm-hmm. no one owns property <laughs> uh, and then everyone's renting. 
And then I think at that point it becomes a normalised experience and you start to focus more on the things you're talking about. Yes, I think there certainly is a tipping point. Um, but the way the policies you know, are being set up, they're just they're trying to, I suppose, push push off you know, the day of reckoning, I suppose. I think what people uh, are less aware of is that um, perhaps our perspective, you know, our the way we look at home ownership is quite outdated. We we see it as a secure sector, and we see it as a sector where we pay off our mortgage costs by the time we retire, and therefore, you know, like we would require just very low age pension rates because we have low housing costs, we have no mortgage repayments to make. But that's that's quite an outdated view of homeownership. It's increasingly outdated because that's the idea that you have this linear housing career where you just progressively pay off your mortgage debt until you're debt free in retirement. That's not what's happening to a lot of people these days. I think the sort of homeownership, the type of homeownership that young people are buying into nowadays is a homeownership sector that is much less secure because people have to take on higher debt burdens and therefore they're subject to greater interest rate risks. And, you know, we're starting to see interest rates rise, so that's becoming an issue. It's a sector where uh, more and more people are actually losing home ownership later in life, you know, because they have higher debt and, you know, if they, they suffer some kind of relationship breakdown or redundancy, you know, when they're in their 50s, for instance, that they could, they're very vulnerable to losing home ownership. Many people are. So it's not yeah. really the most secure sector. Hmm. No, and it days. doesn't, it, it doesn't factor in the amount of money you would spend over a lifetime on rent versus the amount of money you would spend paying off the mortgage. Mm-hmm. And I continually hear economists telling me renting is far cheaper over the course of your life. It's a better economic decision. You'd rather save that money invested elsewhere. Um, and owning house is an emotional decision, which is, I suppose, why I keep coming back to the psychological dimensions of it, because I think it becomes an emotional decision at one point. Can I just flag one thing, because we didn't mention this, and I, I can imagine people would be upset we haven't. We do need to acknowledge Labor did try in 2019. and mm, It's true. The negative gearing policy that they took um, wasn't going to drive prices down. In fact, that was the criticism of it that I think was probably misplaced, because it applied. There was grandfathered and it applied to new dwellings. But it was going to at least provide the possibility of more supply that was less attractive to investors and thereby giving an opportunity to people to buy. I don't want to get into details of the policy. I just acknowledge that happened. But I also, we have to acknowledge it got whacked. Yes, that's (laughs) right. That's right. The fact that it got whacked is, I think, the thing that undergirds a lot of the discussion that we've been having. That reveals something, right? It must reflect something that that was such an unsustainable policy, among others, but it, it didn't go well. Yeah, it, it didn't go well. <laughs> I, yeah. I think they, there was a bit of a problem with the communication. Well, that's just my opinion, really, because, um, you know, there are many different types of investors out there. There are those who are doing it for speculative reasons. And, and then there are others who are doing it because they just want to earn a regular flow of rental income. And, and those investors would, you know, with the sort of uh, policy reform that Labour was recommending, I think um, mm. you'd get more equity-oriented investors into the game, even though you'd see some you know, some of those were only interested in negative gearing and speculation leave the market. And, yeah. you know, really, I don't think the market impacts would have been that great. But anyway. Mm. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rachel. All right. Thank you both. This has been wonderful, Rachel. Thank you so much for staying a little bit uh, afterwards as, as well. I'm, I'm really glad we got that extra stuff in. You're welcome, Scott.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.